Someone over here is grooving down to that music. It's good to see everyone this morning. Good morning, Outlook family. Whether we're together in the room or you're with me online, it is really good to be together to worship God and now to dive into His Word. Before I do that, if you are new to us this morning, checking us out maybe online or you're here with us and this is your first time or one of your first times and you've not said hey yet to let us get to know you better, I would encourage you to do so. We would love to get to know you um, and even let you get to know us as well. You can go to outlookchurch.org new. Go to outlookchurch.org new. You can even do that right now. I'm sure there'll be some part of the sermon that'll get a little bit boring. Get out your smartphone, outlookchurch.org new and say hey to us so we can say hey back to you. Well, as Amy mentioned, we are spending the summer in the book of Romans and we are continuing that study now at the beginning of chapter 12. Now the first 11 chapters have painted for us an amazing portrait of God and of us, what it means to say yes to God, what salvation looks like, just tons of beautiful things that remind us how great it is to say yes and keep saying yes to Jesus. And now, as Paul does in a lot of his letters, uh, Paul's letters are written in what we call the New Testament. Uh, He is an apostle, follower of Jesus, that Jesus sent to spread his good news all over his known area of the world. And Paul dedicated his life to that. He would write letters to Christians in cities that he was either planning to visit or had already uh, spent some time in. And so that's what we're here now, reading a letter that he wrote to the Christians in Rome. And as he does in a lot of these letters, he gets to a point where he issues a practical call to live out all these beautiful truths that he's laid out up to that point. And that's important for us as we enter into chapter 12, because we do well to be reminded that theology is not theoretical, right? It's practical. That That our faith is not just a creed we agree with, it's a life we live. And that's what Paul is going to be urging us to do right now. So we're going to read the passage, then we're going to go through it line by line and just dive right in. So you ready? All right, for the three of you who are ready, let's get, let's get going. No, I'm just kidding. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Let's look at what Paul is saying here and start at the start. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, he says. Clearly to Paul, what he's about to say is something urgent. That for us as people who've come to realize that it's the spiritual aspect of our lives from which every other thing in our lives flows. That that when someone has something, someone as insightful as the Apostle Paul, here we are gathered here today with God's Word open in front of us, when he says, I urge you, what I'm about to say has an urgency to it. We lean up and we pay attention. We lean forward. These are urgent matters. Our sense of their importance is actually what unites us, brothers and sisters, he says. We all understand 
but we're all people who've come to understand that spiritual realities and spiritual truths, our own personal spirituality, is the single most important thing about us. Our ethics, our relationships, uh, uh, the way we make decisions, how we guide our lives, all those things flow from our own spiritual health. So Paul is about to tell us something that he considers urgent. So that's his first little phrase here to set it up. I urge you, and then he says this, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. We've been spending so much time so far in this letter remembering and maybe realizing for the first time just how much God loves us. And Paul is saying, don't lose sight of that. And what I'm about to say, and all the practical application, all the living out of the, of the theology that I've just laid here, keep God's mercy in clear view. Because, man, He loves you. He's for you. He's pulling for you. He's with you. His mercy is abundant. His compassion is ready. His love is everlasting. And it is all for you, not just the person next to you. Not someone who you think's got it all more together, and so God loves them more. It's for you. And he says, in view of God's mercy. I mean, keep that in mind with what I'm about to say. Don't let God's mercy out of your sight. Because our sacrifice and our obedience, which is what he's about to lay down here, come from a right view of God's mercy and grace. Literally, in the original language, it's mercies. It's not mercy generally or conceptually. Oh yeah, God's merciful. Who would argue with that? But mercies, specific and actual in my life and in yours, in view of how good God has been to you, he says. Contemplating the mercies of God will inspire us to live for God. It is a divine incentive for holy living. God is so good to us. And then we just simply want to live life as he instructs us. God's mercy compels us to give all of ourselves to him. I also think Paul adds this because he doesn't want to come across as uh, using his authority to direct people to to, to do what he's about to say. In other words, man, Paul's an apostle. He, 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 he uh, has been called by Jesus. He's deeply insightful and wise. He established churches wherever he went. And so now he's writing these words. And I think he wants his readers to know, look, what I'm about to say, it's not because I said so. Don't just say, that's, oh, that's the right thing to do. Or, or it's just, oh, because that's what the preacher said. Or, that's what, or Paul's saying, that's, it's not just because that's what I said. It's because of how merciful how good God is. Friends, when we grasp, even begin to grasp the greatness of God, right? It calls out greatness in us. I think that's what Paul is doing here. And here's how he continues. In view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies, he says, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Offer your bodies. Now, this is a uniquely Christian statement, and it was probably shocking to Paul's original Greek readers and listeners. If you were someone who loved truth and beauty and philosophy in Paul's day, if you were a, a, a Greek who pursued all that kind of stuff, you would have been shocked to hear what Paul is saying. Greeks would never say, offer your body as a living sacrifice. 
Their philosophy is called the body a tomb, a prison for the soul. They saw the body, flesh, and blood as simply something that held back the spirit. And that all that really mattered was the spiritual and the immaterial. They were ashamed of the physical, despised the body, saw it as just this shell that needed to be ignored and then cast off as soon as possible. But Christian faith sees it differently. We see that the body is made by God and can become a vessel of his spirit and a tool for his glorious work. Jesus is God in a body and thus made it clear that human flesh and blood can be a holy thing, that our body, uh, difficult as it can be at times, is not our enemy, but created by God and can be used as a tool for him. Now, there's a little bit of a paradox here. There's no such thing as devotion to Jesus that's only spiritual. Right? As in purely private and purely eternal. And yet it is deeply spiritual. Right, This is part of the paradox. But a spirituality, a devotion to Jesus that doesn't show up in how we live and serve and what we do with our bodies is a faith that's missing something really, really vital. See, I've found, and I bet you have too, Christ is redeeming all of me, including my sense of self, In my body, Jesus spent no small amount of his earthly ministry healing human bodies. And I use all of me, including my body. We do, as followers of Jesus, in our worship, in our living for him, we realize it's how, it's the tool we use to obey him. And that his work in us will be expressed not only in our words, but in the deeds of our bodies. Any Christian theology that leaves out the body or considers the body an enemy is neglecting a core doctrine. See, when we talk about making choices for Jesus or how to obey Jesus, in in essence, in the end, we're talking about what we're going to do with our bodies, how we're going to live our lives. Are we going to have tongues that practice deceit, to use Biblical language here, lips that spread poisonous gossip, mouths full of cursing and bitterness, feet swift to shed blood, or eyes that are haughty and ignore God? Or will we have tongues that bring healing, hands that lift up the fallen, ears that listen, and arms that embrace, and eyes that are looking to the Lord from from whence our help comes? So Paul says, take your body and devote it to God as an act and an instrument of worship. I've always liked the message paraphrase of this passage. It goes like this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. That's what Paul's asking us to do. Here, offer our bodies. And then he says, as a living sacrifice. Now, what's he talking about here? What does this living sacrifice look like? Well, back in Paul's day, Jewish folks and pagans alike knew what a sacrifice in a temple looked like. Whether it was the temple in Jerusalem or it was temples that were erected in just about every town and city to all those Greek gods and goddesses we learned about in high school. Everyone knew and could easily picture what a sacrifice looked like. And Paul is saying, very very specifically, make your life 
look like that. On an altar, dying to ourselves, poured out, going up in smoke. What's that look like? Well, a couple weeks ago, we talked about that big word, mortification. The mortification of sin. The idea that when we say yes to Jesus, when we obey Him in baptism, and we read in Romans 6 that we're buried with Him in baptism, and then we rise to new life, that our old life is gone, and behold, right, all things have become new. Our old self, though, is still kicking and screaming and gasping for life, right? Any of you had a conversation with your old self recently? Right? Telling it to shut up, telling it to go away, telling it to get back down on that cross. That's what mortification of sin is. It's simply saying, look, my, the, the word says, my old self is dying, dead and gone. And so I live out by faith the reality of that truth. And so I am joining with Jesus, essentially, in the killing of my old self. Those old ways of thinking need to die. Those old ways of acting and reacting, man, I need them to go the way of all the earth, right? And so mortification of sin is is just letting that go. That's part of what it means to put our lives on the altar. The old me's got to go. And the new me, it's a presentation of ourselves for obedience and service. That's the worship that we're talking about. Holy and pleasing to God the Bible says. Not because we're flawless, but because we're fully devoted. Our vital energies, all dedicated to Him. When the Bible talks about holiness, and when um, the uh, Old Testament will use descriptions of something that's been set aside and devoted to God, and then that's what makes it holy. Holiness is not perfect behavior. Holiness is wholehearted devotion. When we, when we set aside ourselves, when we put ourselves on an altar, so to speak, and say, God, I belong to you. Man, the best thing any of us can say to God on any given day or however many times a day we need to say it is, God, I belong to you. I'm yours. Do with me what you will. I'm putting my whole self on this altar, so to speak. I'm sacrificing my whole self in worship to you. I mentioned that Paul, Paul liked to write letters, right? Much of our New Testament are these letters. And when you begin to get into the Bible, you begin to see there's a certain pattern, right? This, the Holy Spirit is using Paul to write these letters, and he'll write them to different people, but there'll be certain moments where you're like, that sounds a lot like what he said to these Christians. And that makes sense, right? Because he's saying, giving much of the same advice, much of the same guidance and encouragement. And so when he wrote a letter to the Ephesian Christians at the beginning of chapter 5, he says this, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. We talked about that last week and the week before. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. And then he, begin, then he grabs a little bit of this language that we're reading today. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Again, borrowing some Old Testament language and imagery there, the idea that 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 sacrifice is a pleasing aroma to God because it was given out of worship and faith and out of a whole heart. And so Jesus did that, right? Jesus sacrificed himself. He calls us to live a life of sacrifice and giving and worship 
This word for worship that we see here is also, can also be translated service. And it basically means giving ourselves over to the labor or the volunteer, voluntarily undertaking a work that's before us. The language came to mean one which gives their life, that which one gives their life to, or what we might call your life's work, to sum it up. And so when he's saying, this is your true and proper worship, it's this is your life's work. You will never stop as a disciple of Jesus, giving your life, sacrificing yourself, climbing back on that altar, and constantly saying to God, I'm yours. I'm yours. True worship is the offering of one's whole self, of our everyday life. When he wrote a letter to the Corinthians, he summed it up this way, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Much like Tony prayed so beautifully earlier that whatever we do, it would bring God glory. It would please him. Not elaborate prayers, not elevated liturgies, as beautiful and inspiring as those may be, but whatever you do. I like that. It's simple. I like simple things, right? Whatever you do, See the world as a temple. We can see our living as a liturgy. We can see our common acts as communion with God. It's easy for us to think, I'm going to church to worship God. That that makes total sense. We might even say that. I'm going to church to worship God. But let me encourage you to also add to that great thought this one. I'm going to school to worship God. I'm going to work and work hard, do my work well to worship God. I'm going to run errands or visit a family member or take a walk to worship God because I believe that's what we're trying to be told here, if we'll hear it in this passage, that everything that we do can be done to worship God. Amen? No worship is merely inward. It needs to come out of us and show up in our living. He goes on, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, nonconformity, the nonconformity of the people of God is an ancient and steady concept, right? From the Old Testament through the New, that when we say yes to God, we will find ourselves increasingly unlike the world around us. That's just going to happen. That's just the way it is. But we've got to cooperate with that happening. Don't be conformed to the prevailing culture of humans, but be transformed by the powerful spirit of God is what we're reading here. Now, let me geek out for just a second on a little bit of grammar stuff, which I think is helpful. So don't fall asleep. This will only only last a minute. Okay. Both these verbs here, do not conform and be transformed, are, are written in the Greek in what's called present passive imperative. Okay. Present passive means that what Paul is saying is that this is not a once and done thing. Remember that one time when you didn't conform and remember that time that you were transformed, right? Instead, what he's saying is that it's an ongoing attitude that we are to maintain. In other words, the more accurate might even be to say, go on letting yourselves not be conformed. That's the present and then the passive, letting yourselves. You're submitting to something that's being done to you. That's the passive part. The present is that it goes on and on. So go on letting yourselves not be conformed and go on letting yourselves be transformed. Now, I really like this because what it reminds me of is that this is not all up to me. In fact, far from it, right? Remember the synergy that we talked about last week, that original word about how God works everything together? What this tells me is 
I've got to present my body, myself, my life as an, a living sacrifice. Everything else, I just get in that position. I just say, God, I'm yours. And then he begins to do. It's present passive. Go on letting yourself. He begins to help me not conform, not be molded and pressed by this world and its ways. He helps me by the power of his spirit be transformed. I just keep myself on the altar. Letting myself not be conformed. Letting myself be transformed. And then there's the imperative part, which says that it's our choice or our responsibility. None of this happens without my permission. I say yes to God. He then begins to work in me with all the room that I'll give him and all the room that you'll give him. So don't be conformed, but be transformed. And to what? Well, there are really two things here. We humans really benefit from models, and there are really two in front of us here to choose. And that is we're either going to be conformed to the world or transformed toward God's will. Now, let's define what the world means for just a second. When we see the world in Scripture in this way, we're talking simply about society without God, culture apart from God, His truth, His ways. It's ignorant of God's truth by its nature. The world is rebellious of God's ways, unable to tap God's power. The world is whatever makes temptation look good and sin look normal. That's the world. The world is God-denying, it's sin-justifying, it's excuse-making, it's confused in its priorities, it's inherently selfish in its motivations, just like all of us without Christ, right? That's the world. In 1 John we read that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not and love for the Father is not in them. The Bible does make it really clear that there is a dichotomy here. There's a choice. And that when we say yes to Jesus and leave that old life behind, which is a glorious thing to get the chance to finally be able to do, then our affections for our old way of life, our old way of thinking, while tempting, need to be severed. That when we still think that was still pretty awesome back there, and we have affection and love for our old ways and for the world and its ways, then we are not creating the room in our hearts that we need for the love of the Father within us. Now, James, the Apostle James was more blunt when he wrote that we must keep ourselves from being polluted by the world in his first chapter. And then later he says, asks this question, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Now, that's huge, right? The last thing I want to be, and I bet you're with me, is an enemy of God. And Paul is telling us in Romans, don't allow yourself to be conformed to this world any longer. You don't need to be. Let God transform you. Now, by way of application here, I want to share something that seems to me to be a huge way, and I've talked about it before, and uh, I'll, t I'll keep talking about it as an American pastor in 2021. Here's what it seems to me to be a huge way a lot of Christians are getting cozy with the world today, perhaps without even really realizing it. I see it everywhere, and it really breaks my heart. Too many of us have let a political platform tell us as Christians what is right. By that I mean it's, we've easily or too easily let it become the first place we go to determine whether a thought or an idea is correct and good. Does it agree with my politics is the first question we ask. 
instead of making that question be about God's word discerned among God's people. It's easy to become filled far more with ideologies and positions that are, quite frankly, too often pureed and spoon-fed by politicians and pundits and the media and anyone willing to scare us enough to buy into buying their book or subscribing to their podcast, right? Instead of being open and teachable to first what Christ would have his church do and be in our world today. Now, I've said before, I find planks within every political platform that are interesting, useful, and even good. I find others from every platform that are abhorrent and grievous and, at the very least, counterproductive. Why do I find that across that spectrum? Because they are human-made platforms, right? They're the world. Don't put more hope in them than they are capable of carrying, because it isn't much. And so, friends, if our worldviews become primarily, primarily fed by our politics, we are starving our souls and in danger of becoming friends with the world. See, there's a mold. There's a pattern. That's the word Paul uses, pattern. There's a pattern to life without God. It's predictable. It's monotonous. It works hard to dress itself up as original and attractive with with each new generation, but it's the same rehashed recipe of money and stuff and pleasure and comfort and power and glory. And even though we find many of these things elusive to us, we will keep chasing them. It's the ways of the world, the pattern of the world, and it's as old as time. And if we don't rebel against that pattern with a power not of this world, we will find ourselves conforming to it. And we do well to pay attention to the forces, the ideas, the philosophies, the input around us that is consciously and subconsciously molding and forming us every day. We as Christians are people who've decided we will no longer shrink ourselves to fit in with this world. It's not worth it. And the life Jesus gives is too large for that, right? That should get an amen. The life Jesus gives is too large for that, right? We're being being metamorphosized beyond that. That's the word that's used here, metamorpho, the word for metamorphosis. It's only used a couple places in Scripture. Matthew and Mark use it to describe Jesus' transfiguration. And then we read it right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him. Someone say, more and more like Him. As we are changed into His glorious image. See, that is what I need and I believe what the world needs today. Amen. More and more people who are more and more like him. I don't need to become more and more like Rob. That doesn't work. I need to become more and more like him. And he, he, here's the mind-blowing part. This was the plan all along, right? We, we think today, maybe you, I've thought this, I, I've thought this, maybe you've thought this. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus were here on earth, like right there, hands, feet, physically with us? That would be awesome to talk with him, to be near him. Uh, what a different world it would be if Jesus were just right here with us, we might be tempted to think. But check this. Jesus' plan all along was to be here for a while and then to go and be seated with the Father and pour out his Spirit into what? Us. 
people, hands, feet, mouths, minds. Now Jesus can go global. He can be everywhere through his people. Because we are supposed to be those who are becoming, not flawless, more and more like him. Not just in our thoughts and our attitudes, but in our compassion, in our empathy, in our actions, in the difference that we make in this world. How does this happen? It happens through the renewing of our minds, it says. How does that renewing happen? Well, I got nothing very original for you here. Prayer, time in God's word, community with other Christians, obedience to what you hear and learn, all of those things, constant, continuing instruction and inspiration, plant yourself in good soil, get watered, get sunlight, let those things grow in you, and this is the renewal of our minds. That's the way it works. And it is our whole minds, not just our brains, so to speak, our inner disposition, our drives, our desires are constantly being adjusted to this newness that we've been giving. That's what it means to become a new person. My thoughts aren't quite what they used to be. I'm getting, I'm getting wiser. I'm getting uh, more peaceful. I'm, I'm getting clearer headed. What I think about and how I think about it are changing. And when that happens, then this happens. Check it. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, you will be able to discern what God wants out of you in your life, for you in your life. Because God does have a will for you. It can be easy to get kind of fixated on like, oh God, what's your will for me today? Or what all the specifics, right? We'd love to get more specifics. I know I would. But generally, we can really embrace his will when we remember that his will for us is that we be spiritually healthy and whole, that we be healed. That's an easy one. Man, Jesus wants to heal you. And he knows all the places where you need healed. Some of them you're aware of and some of them you're not quite aware of yet. But he knows. He wants you to love him and then learn to love others. He wants you to do good and enjoy doing good. He wants you to be changed so you can change the world. You'll find yourself doing exactly that, making moral decisions because your mind is becoming more and more full of God's wisdom from his word. You're being more and more thoroughly renewed. You get new instincts, able to see what to do in a given situation. You sniff out truth from lies. You begin to not fall for, uh, uh, for getting upset about what's um, a distraction compared to what's important or worried or angry about unimportant things and neglect essential things. All these things come when we have renewed minds. And so what do we do with what we just read here today? Well, I'd say read it again. This is one of those passages that you can literally visit every day and its relevance will not diminish whatsoever. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Don't conform, be transformed. Test and approve what God's will is. It's not mysterious, God's will. And these next chapters that we'll read in Romans will begin to lay out what, what it means to live for God, what that will looks like. And it starts right here on the altar, giving ourselves. And it will take our whole life. Amen? Let's pray about that. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you, God, that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write those words and that we, so many centuries later, can be hearing them and they can land on our minds and hearts and mean so much. 
We ask, God, that you would help us to be people, help us by your Spirit to be people who will put our lives in front of you as an act of worship, living sacrifices, gladly giving ourselves so that we can um, serve you, worship you, just simply glorify you. More of you, less of us. That sounds good, Lord. That's who we want to be. We're not going to do it by ourselves. And thank you that we don't have to. Thank you that you're with us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.